0: December thirteenth, 1887, William and Mary York of Mall, Tennessee gave birth to the third of their 11 children. His name was Alvin. He had a very little schooling due to a need to help his father running the family farm and hunting for food. Though his formal education was lacking, he was a crack shot and a skilled marksman and an adept woodsman. <coughs> his father died in 1911 and Alvin, as the oldest living in his area still, uh, was forced to help his mother in raising his younger children, and to support the family, he began working as a laborer and a logger in Tennessee. During this period, you can imagine the crowds of uh, of loggers, and and, and in that era, uh, he became a heavy drinker and was frequently involved in bar fights, and um, despite pleas from his mother to improve his behavior, he persisted in drinking. And that continued until tragedy struck in the winter of 1914, when his friend Everett Delk was beaten to death during a drunken barroom brawl in nearby Kentucky. And shaken by this, the Lord used that in his life to turn him back to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he joined a church and became a member there. And he met his future wife, Gracie, through that church. You remember 1914 was the start of World War I, and it wasn't until 1917 that the United States of America entered into that war. And York became concerned that he would be required to serve. The beliefs of his church were that he would uh, that, that not uh, uh, be a part of the war. And so uh, he was advised to seek conscientious objector status. And as a result, he wrote on his draft card four simple words, don't want to fight. His case was reviewed and his crest was denied, and he was drafted in the Army at age 30. He was assigned to Company G, the 328th Infantry Regiment, the 82nd Infantry Division, and he reported to Camp Gordon in Georgia. He reported, uh, as he arrived there, it became very clear that this was a marksman that was unlike many in the Army, and he was seen as a crack shot. But his skills as a marksman was seen as an oddity because he did not wish to fight. And the captain Edward Danworth and his battalion commander, Major General Edward Buxton, showed him from scripture the biblical justification for war. Justification for a just war. And they were able to convince him that war could be justified. He traveled to Boston, then sailed to France in May 1918. There, entering the fighting, his unit received orders on the night of October 7th to advance the next morning to take hill number 223, and to press on to sever one of the French railroads the Germans were using there. They advanced around 6 a.m. the next morning. The Americans succeeded in taking that hill. And moving forward from the hill, his unit was forced to attack through a triangular valley, and quickly came under German machine gun fire on several different sides. That stalled the attack, and the Americans began taking heavy casualties. In order to eliminate the guns, 17 men, led by another sergeant, including York, ordered to work around to the German rear. And Taking advantage of the brush and the hilly nature of the terrain, Sergeant York and the other sergeant, Sergeant Bernard Early, They succeeded in slipping behind German lines and advanced up one of the hills that were opposite the American advance. In so doing, they overran and captured a German headquarters area and secured a large number of prisoners, including a major. And Sergeant Early's men began uh, securing the prisoners, but the machine gunners, the German machine gunners up the slope, turned several of their guns as they realized the Americans were behind them and opened fire on these American groups. It killed six and wounded three, including Sergeant Early. Being the uh, 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 top-ranking left, the only top-ranking soldier left, it left York in command of the remaining seven men. With his men behind cover, guarding the prisoners, he moved to a spot where he could deal with the machine gunners. And lying in a prone position, he utilized the shooting skills that he had uh, honed as a boy. He began picking up the German gunners, and he moved from a prone position to a standing position as he evaded enemy fire. During the course of the fight, six German soldiers emerged from their trenches and arose with bayonets drawn and charged at York. Running low on rifle ammunition, he drew his pistol and dropped all six before they reached him. Then he switched back to his rifle and returned to sniping at the German machine guns. Believing he had killed around 20 Germans and not wishing to kill more than necessary, he began yelling at them to surrender. In this, he was aided by the captured German Major who began in German, urging his men to cease fighting. Rounding up the prisoners in that immediate area, York and his men captured around 100 Germans. Though he did not accomplish this single-handedly, he in essence virtually did. With the Major's assistance, he began moving the men back toward the American lines. In process, they captured another 30 Germans. Advancing through artillery fire, he succeeded in delivering 132 soldiers with his six or seven men who were still with him to battalion headquarters. After this, he and his men rejoined their unit and fought through to the railroad. In the course of the fight, uh, 28 Germans were killed and 35 machine guns captured. Much of that work done by Sergeant Alvin York. He was promoted to sergeant uh, officially and awarded the Distinguished Service Cross after his achievements. He remained with his unit for the final weeks of the war, and his decoration was upgraded to the Medal of Honor, which he received on April 18, 1919. He also received a French award and also an Italian award. And As he returned to New York in late May, he was hailed as a hero and received ticker tape parade for himself there in New York. Here's a man who destroyed the works of the Germans virtually single-handedly and one of our great military war heroes. But I want to tell you something greater than that, and it is the purpose of Christmas this morning. The purpose of Christmas seen in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 specifically, where Jesus Christ single-handedly destroys the greatest enemy threat in the creation of this world. I want to focus on one phrase. I don't normally focus on a single verse or a single phrase, but I want to do that this morning and lift our ears and direct our vision to the purpose of Christmas. 1 John 38 b, the second part there. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. <clears throat> For this purpose <coughs> A literal translation of this verse Says this For this reason, this purpose The Son of God appeared The Son of God came the Son of God was manifested He appeared That He might loose, liberate Disable The works Of the devil I want you to see that right there in First John chapter 3, verse 8, we have the purpose of Jesus coming. And that's the overarching theme here. The purpose of Jesus coming. Sorry, I didn't give you. Sergeant York, sorry. The purpose of Jesus coming. Notice what it says. For this purpose. For this purpose. It's a Greek phrase that tells us, this is the intent of Christ's coming. This is the reason. This is why He came. When you when you uh, look at all the data, you look at all the material, and you see the story of the Gospels, and, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the prophecies and the plan of God in the Old Testament, this is why the Messiah came. To destroy the devil's works. We're going to take the, uh, different parts of this verse here, and put it all together, and, and study in depth this verse. But first, I want you to see this morning, that... This is... I'm not sure why my remote's not working this morning. But this is the purpose of a person. The purpose of a person. Notice it says in verse 8, For this purpose, the Son of God. The Son of God. The Son of God. He appeared. So Son God appeared. It was manifested, our translation says. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he was not... Uh, just, just appear on the scene as one born and then starting his life. This is one who had always uh, had always been. And now he appears on the scene. The Son of God appears. Notice that he calls Jesus Christ the Son of God. This is the, uh, there are seven occurrences of that title, the Son of God, in this letter. It emphasizes the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also emphasizes the severity of his conflict with the devil. Son of God versus devil here, all right. And when we see the Son of God, we need to understand that, that is the second person of the Trinity. God the Father's Son. Jesus always was. He always existed. He never had a beginning. He will have no end. He had a beginning in a human life. But it was because it was God in the flesh. He always was. And as Jesus always was, He always was God. And one of the character traits of God is that God is always righteous he is always righteous so when jesus here is described as the son of god who has manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil he is carrying out his righteous nature he is righteous he is good he always was good jesus never had a day where he decided i'm going to be good jesus always was good it is part of the core of who he is and jesus is always love Jesus and God, the Father and the Spirit did not start loving when Jesus Christ became a baby and then saved the world through his cross. God, the Father, God, the Son and God, the Spirit had always loved and enjoyed fellowship and relationship with one another. So when Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil, this is an expression of his love because he was always loved. He rescued. He came. He didn't sit back. He rescued. He came. This son of God, this person was in conflict with the devil. Notice the contrast. The son of God came to destroy something bad that was going on. The works of the devil. He is the pioneer. In Hebrews, he's called the captain of our salvation. The pioneer of our salvation. He is the hero. He is the deliverer. He is the rescuer. And it was not the father who came... It was the Father's plan for the Son to come. It was not the Spirit who came, first of all. It was the Son of God who came. The Son who appeared, who came and was incarnated. So I want you to see this morning, the person of Christmas, Jesus Christ. But as I said, there's a conflict here. Next, I want you to see the pretender Christmas. The pretender of Christmas. Notice that it says, he came, skipping down to the end, to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil. The devil did not always exist. The devil had a, be- had a, had a beginning. He was a created being. Seems though he, he started out well, but he allowed rebellion to arise in his heart, and he chose to rebel against God and his, and his word. And the devil now is an individual, a supernatural being, who ceaselessly sins. He never stops sinning. He is opposed to God. He is active, not passive. He is working against God. Notice the works of the devil. The works of the devil. Everything the devil has done, has influenced, or will do is opposition to God. And the text tells us that Jesus came to destroy that on the cross. He was a murderer from the beginning, the Bible tells us. He's a liar and the father of lies. He's the originator of sin and rebellion. He opposes and tries to destroy every work of God using any tactic and means at his availability. He blinds the eyes of men to miss spiritual truth. He puts men in bondage to their own desires and his own will rather than the will of God to love God and love one another. He infiltrates with opportunities of temptation. He tries to destroy the work of God using doubt, using fear, using confusion, even using sickness, envy, pride, slander, anything that he thinks will destroy the work of God. So there is the pretender. I say the pretender because he is the one who tries to usurp the authority of God in this world. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. Because he has assumed that position, but that is not his rightful position. He's the pretender. And his purpose and entire goal in life is to take as many uh, with him to where he is destined to the lake of fire and direct them away from the light-giving hope of the Lord Jesus. But I want to tell you next about the process. The process here. Look at the text again. How did the Son of God destroy the works of the devil? It says, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested. Was manifested. Uh, Translated, appeared in other places. Manifested. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Christ, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery or a thing to be grasped to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion or form as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He appeared. He was incarnated. God in flesh, incarnated in flesh. He arrived at conception in Mary. He was born. He grew. He lived. He died. He was raised and ascended. There was a process here, and so as the choir sang this morning, "Born to Die" tells us the reason Jesus Christ came. And here's a side of the Christmas story that isn't often told. John MacArthur says, "Those soft little hands." fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby's feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and an eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. There's a process here. He didn't come to stay in the manger. He came because that was necessary to destroy the works of the devil on the cross. And it wasn't pretty. Some of our songs and hymns and our ideas and Christmas cards certainly have a sentimental feel to it. But I want you to understand it was raw. It was rugged when Jesus Christ came. It was a broken world, a world under the curse under which he came. And he entered in under that curse and he died as the curse on the cross. There is a process here of his coming as we reflect on Christmas. But I want to focus on the next part here the power. The power. Look what it says. John chapter 3, verse 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might destroy it. That word destroys, if you've ever taken Greek, it's the word that you always learn your conjugations on luo. And it's the word, the word that means to loose, to livery. To render inoperative. To take, as Matthew shared, shared the other day in special meetings, take the stinger out of the bee. How did the Lord Jesus Christ then uh, destroy the works of the devil? Well, I want to go through Jesus' life, but I want to show you through the stages of his life how he did that. And first of all, I want you to understand that Jesus destroyed the power of the devil, the works of the devil, through his virgin birth. Through his virgin birth. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Mary had Jesus without the help of a man. The virgin birth. What does the virgin birth tell us about Jesus Christ and His coming to destroy the works of the devil? Well, it shows us that salvation can only come from the Lord. Mary had a child without the help of a man. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived that inside of her. Man couldn't conjure this up. And the virgin birth gives Jesus his full humanity to obey and suffer and die to be born of a woman, to fully bear the sins of God, and, uh, the, the sins as God in Genesis 3, the curse of all mankind. It's interesting in Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said unto Mary her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Even in the womb He was called holy. Showing He came to destroy the works of the devil separate from sin. He was untouched by corruption because of the work of the Spirit in conception prevented the transmission of sin. Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. So through his virgin birth, he shows his power to destroy the works of the devil. Secondly, through his perfect life, his perfect life. You know that as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man, he never sinned. In him was no sin. He suffered the things we did, but yet without sin, the Bible says. So through his perfect life, you know that the climax of that came after his baptism. He is sent out into the wilderness where he fastened praise for 40 days and during that time in the desert, which is what the wilderness is, it's the Middle Eastern desert, he is tempted in moments of physical weakness, of hunger and thirst by the, by, by the devil. And Jesus does what Israel did not do in their temptation in the wilderness. Jesus comes out victorious, says no to the devil, says yes to God, lives and abides in the word of God, saturates his mind in the word of God, so that when he is tempted, the word of God comes out, he destroys the work of the devil in temptation, and shows us that through Jesus, we can have victory over temptation. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says this, Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam's sin, in Genesis chapter 1, Judgment came upon all men under condemnation. So God condemns mankind through Adam's sin because he was our representative there in the Garden of Eden. We would have done what Adam did. Don't fool yourself. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled what Adam failed him, the free gift came upon all men in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam... Many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one. Shall many be made righteous. Jesus perfect life. is obedience. Thirdly through his ministry. Through his ministry. You read the book of Luke. Uh, particularly. And you'll see that as Jesus is going. Proclaiming the good news of himself. And his kingdom. That there is opposition. In that message. Satanic opposition. Message. Uh, opposition from the works of the devil. But Luke 4, verse 41, after Jesus goes and He declares His ministry in Nazareth, and He says that He is the, he is the one who has come to, to remove the blinders, to, to set the captives free. It says, And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, our Messiah, the Son of God. And He rebuked them, and suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. He shows his power over the works of Satan in his ministry. In Luke 10, after he sends his seventy disciples out, and they report back to them, he says to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Through his ministry, he shows his power over the works of the devil. But fourthly, here is the climax. All those things are true and show that Jesus had power over the works of the devil. But this particular uh, part of his life shows this in such clarity through his eternal payment. Through his eternal payment. On the cross, when he died, all those who will put their faith in him died as well. Their old man is dead. The old life is dead. They are no longer in bondage to the devil, their former father. Though the influence of sin is all around them, they never have to yield to that influence. They are free from the power of sin and have been joined to Jesus' life. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Our writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus' incarnation. Why He came and the writer of Hebrews says this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 Paul says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, talking about the satanic world, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, says, and they overcame him. Overcame who? Verse 10, the accuser. Satan, Diabolos, the devil, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, a reference to the work of Christ and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death through his eternal payment. But Jesus also shows his power through his resurrection. Through His resurrection. His resurrection assures that we are made alive in Him and not destined to everlasting wrath for our spiritual deadness. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened or made us alive together with Christ by grace he are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He destroyed the works of the devil through His resurrection. Romans 6 says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Romans six verse four says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans six eleven says, likewise reckon, or believe it to be true, to believe believe the spiritual truth that you are dead with Christ and raised with him. Believe it to be true in your personal life. Make what is positional truth practical reality in your life. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed in the sin, but alive in the God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion or power or rule over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Jesus' resurrection destroys the work of the devil. His resurrection also declares us righteous. Did you know that? Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What is justification? It is that God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ if we put faith in His work alone. And God sees us now as though you've never sinned and as though you've always obeyed, though that is not true of you. God chooses to see you that way. That is justification. And it it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we enjoy that fruit of the gospel, justification. And not only through His resurrection, but also through His ascension. Jesus destroys the work of the devil. Ephesians 1.20 says, "...which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He is exalted above any power. There is no power, no influence on you, no generational patterns in your family that is greater than the power of the gospel in Jesus. There are no excuses you could ever come up with. That would be stronger than what Jesus did in the cross. And why He came to destroy the works of the devil in your life. 1 Corinthians 15.21 says, Who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. And I shared with you this morning about the reality of of, of, of Satan's uh, uh, work. He is a powerful being, but he is a created being is not the eternal God. And Jesus did what Satan could not do. Romans 5 tells us that God's work in Christ is greater than any work that Adam did to ruin humanity. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, For he must reign his ascension till he hath put all enemies under his feet. In other words, there is a day as Jesus reigned, as he resurrected and ascended, that he will one day put all enemies under his feet. And the picture of that is of a, uh, a Middle Eastern general with his foot on the neck of his enemy. Because of his ascension, we can enjoy... We can relish, we can cooperate with the destruction of the works of the devil and persevere in the Christian life and not fall away. How do we know that? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us that. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, says, You can endure because there are others who have, and they are in the grandstands, saying, Go on. And then he says in verse two, but the real reason you can go on is because Jesus is the A through Z of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. One day he will return, he will set things right, and eternally punish the devil whose works he has destroyed. What does this text mean for us? Folks, if you are in Christ, you are a part of that promise. That the works of the devil and the authority over Satan has been given to you because you are in Christ. You are joined to the authority. Are you stuck in a sin pattern? Are you stuck in a habit that you cannot deliver yourself of? You cannot destroy the works of the devil yourself. Jesus already did. And that is why he came. You need him because he came for this purpose. It's through continuing faith in Jesus' work and the relying on the power inside of us, the Holy Spirit, that we who are believers do not make a practice or a habit of unrepentant sin. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a satisfactory, full punishment of God for our sins, who we go to and repent and exercise our faith in His finished work for, not just at your salvation, but day to day. And we can kill sin And we do not have to give in to temptation. We can advance because the gospel, Christ, is inside of us through the Spirit. Once serving the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit that even right now is working in the children of disobedience, in Christ now we have a new master who loves and cares for us. Once blinded by the works of the devil to not be able to see spiritual truth, in Christ we see spiritual truth. Once captive to our desires by the work of the devil, in Christ we can fully love and obey God through His power. Once broken and twisted and distorted in our brokenness by the works of the devil, in Christ we are made who we are and restored in His image. Galatians 3.26 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10.3-4 and says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not walk war after the flesh, we live in a physical world, Paul says, but we do not have a physical war uh, for, for, for good and evil in our lives here. For the weapons of our warfare are not physical, are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What does it tell us? What does this mean? It means that Paul said in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, because He came to destroy the works of the devil. First Peter says, Whom resists steadfast in the faith, Jesus undid what the devil achieved. He made everything sad come untrue in him. He loosed bondage. He liberated through the incarnated Jesus, the Son of God. And this is the purpose of Christmas. It is the work of the devil to sin and oppose God. It is the work of Jesus to save, to keep saving us, and to finish What he has begun in us. Romans 16.20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So why did Jesus come? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came... Why did He come? Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for the true purpose, meaning of Christmas. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hero of Your Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is set so clearly in its pages as the only rescuer we could ever want or need. We thank you that you came to reclaim what was broken. We ask that you would do that in lives this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would do the work in hearts as the message has been delivered. The call this morning to each of us is... A faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there may be some here this morning who have not taken that step of faith. To turn aside from whatever they're holding on to to give them rescue and salvation from their life. And let it go and cling to Jesus Christ. I pray you help them understand there's nothing they can contribute and bring to their salvation. It's only the righteousness of Christ and the work in His behalf. Lord, there are believers here this morning that need to have that rooted out of their lives as well as they have tended to go back to that. Lord, make us people who are filled with Your Spirit and not filled with ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.